Are you able to stand with me for a moment? I'd like us to pray. We're going to look into God's Word together. I wonder if we can pray as we do. Lord, we thank you for your Word. Lord, I thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are the Word of God. And you, we also have the Word of God contained in the Bible for us. And I pray as we open it, and as we read together, and as, we, as I share, Lord, that we would know you speaking to us. Um, Lord, I've prepared some thoughts, but I pray that you would be speaking to your people today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Take your seats, please. So, we're doing a little series uh, for, for a short time on, called Hallmarks, looking at things that remain, things that are faithful, things that we can rely on, particularly in the ups and downs of life, as um, I think there's a word earlier about that. And um, I shared last week about hope, shared the week before about faith, and so you might guess what's coming this week uh, in this particular little series. I'm going to be looking at love. Now, somebody said to me last week after the service, some pe- sometimes people can be very kind, and they said, um, I wasn't sh- when I saw you were preaching on hope, I wasn't sure you'd be able to say anything new. Um, uh, uh, but God had blessed them, which was very, I'm very pleased about. Um, now, this week, I'm preaching about love. What on earth could I possibly say that's new about love? And I just want to, set, I want to release myself from that pressure, if that's all right. Um, because just to encourage you and help, I don't think a preacher's job is to always present something that's new. I think a preacher's job is to present something that's now. It's only one letter difference. But what between new and now, but it's a profound difference, actually. We're encouraged to bring a word for now, for this season, for us. And so I'm going to release myself from the pressure of wanting to entertain and provide something new. And instead, I want to bring what I believe is a now word from God. And a word, I think, that is, is coming out of, back into 1 John again. We did this a couple of weeks ago, looked at 1 John. And I've dived back in there because there's a great passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13, but there's another great one on love in 1 John 4. And so we're going to be reading that in a moment. And I want us to see today why um, love is a hallmark of all the things that are reliable and why God's love is something that we can base our lives upon why it is completely trustworthy and true, and why we can rely on the love of God. There's one verse that stands out to me in all that we're going to be looking at today, and it's this verse. And, and if you can make, it's not a very long passage, so maybe we could memorize this uh, by the end of today. This is 1 John 4, 16. 1 John 4, 16. Some of you will have noticed that we were at a wedding yesterday, some of us, and uh, it was my role to take the service and to preach, and I'd been given some readings to do. One of them was from 1 John, and uh, not this passage, a different one, and one was from Genesis. So I prepared my talk, and I looked up the passages as you do before a service like that, and I'd been given the references and looked them up and got the Genesis passage. That was fine. Got the John passage. It said John 3.18, and I thought, that's an unusual verse, but I'll have a go. And I put the two together and thought, hmm, yeah, okay, I'll make something of this. And it wasn't until I was stood at the front of the service, just before the service was about to start, that I checked the order of service. And although I'd been sent John 3.18, the verse they wanted me to preach on was 1 John 3.18. One was about judgment. One was about love. <laughs> if only I'd known that before I'd done my sermon. No, but it... But, so getting the references right can be really important, can't it? Um, but we, I think we managed to pull it off, not least because I'd ignored that passage and just hadn't prepared on it uh, pretty much and uh, was able, I think, just to weave something in on the other one. 
briefly. But we're in 1 John, and it's an incredible book about love. And it's a book about all sorts of things, because it's written to a group of people who are asking all sorts of questions. They're John's writing to a group of people a bit like us, kind of, but 2,000 years ago. And there's, they're surrounded by people talking about all sorts of things. These days, if you want an opinion, we get out a phone or a, a, a tablet or we go on the computer and we go into the all-knowing Google. And uh, it's just a portal into all sorts of stuff, isn't it? Some of it's outstanding. Some of it's appalling. Uh, and... I'm not sure we always have the ability to filter through what's outstanding and what's appalling, but we try our best, and there's all sorts of stuff out there. Well, this group of people in the early church was surrounded by opinions telling them all sorts of things. They were surrounded by people saying um, all sorts of different things to them. They were teaching different things about Jesus. They were teaching different things about how to live. They were teaching different things about who people were and what they should believe and all these different opinions And not only was it out there somewhere, but this stuff was coming into the church. And so John's writing to tell people what's true. How do you know what's true? How do you know what you can trust? How how do I know when someone's telling me the truth? How do I know when a person really is a Christian and they're saying that they are? What does it mean to live as a Christian? That's the kind of questions they're asking. And I think today our concern, mine quite often, is how do I live as a Christian? How do I live as a follower of Jesus? How do I really make this work in my day-to-day life? Not just sort of a bit, but really live. How do I really put this into practice? Not just to exist, but to live and to thrive. So we're going to turn to the Scripture and see what this passage says. It's a couple of screens of text, and then I'm going to pull out a couple of thoughts for us, which I trust will be a blessing to us today. Dear friends, this is 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. I'm reading from the NIV. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For, whom, for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. That's quite a lot in there. Um, And actually, if I had two screens of of different quotes, and I decided not to put them in because I thought it might be just too much text in in one go for us, but I pulled out a screen of surprising quotes and a screen of really powerful ones because there's so much in there that as you're reading, if you were able to follow it, you'd be thinking, oh, that's a bit, that sticks out. That's unusual. 
that caught my attention. And, and I encourage people when, when we're reading the Bible together and we've prayed, it's a good thing to, to just note down anything that stands out and you're saying, oh, hadn't spotted that before and, uh, or hadn't read it quite like that. And there will have been some bits, no doubt, in that passage as we look through it that stood out and you thought, hmm, I wonder what that means. There's a lot in this. But I want to look at three simple things today which I believe are profound for us. The first is about knowing God's love. I want to talk about knowing God's love. This passage begins and ends with us loving one another, and I'll get to that. Um, But I think there's a problem today in us not knowing God's love enough. I think this is a fairly universal problem that we do not understand enough about God's love. When I say we, I'm including me in this. We and we on the planet don't understand enough about God's love. We don't know God's love deeply enough. I think it's fair to say that when we come to the Bible today, we tend to read it with me inserted into it where it says we. I tend to read it first about me. I I read an answer for my issues. I'm looking for revelation for me. I'm looking for answers for me. And yet when the New Testament's written, it's written to communities and the authors are writing to whole groups of people. And you'll notice that the language is plural in all of this. It's we, we, we. He sent his only son so that we might live through him. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's our and we and plural. John's problem is that his community might not be showing love enough to one another and they've got this confusion around who can we trust, who's for us and who's against us. Our issue today as we look around us, is, is that we see an increasing rate of anxiety. We see people lacking confidence. We see people struggling with shame. We see people desperate to prove themselves or struggling under comparison with others. We see crippling bad habits or addiction. We see people overworking. We see other people who are desperate. Many of those issues are internal problems. Many of those are problems of isolation. They're they're problems of individuals. And John's writing to a corporate community and saying, you've got some issues as a whole body. We've got some issues as a society today that are about us. But either way, the answer is going to be relying on God's love. Relying on God's love. And uh, we're coming to a passage which is all about love. This is the first bit we're going to see. God is love. And I've got a bit of a theory. You can test this one. I I haven't scientifically tested it. But my theory when we're reading, uh, when you're hearing Christian teachers teach or preachers preach or biblical authors write, my theory is this, that their own salvation story shapes their theology. Their own story of how they met Jesus often shapes what they believe and preach and teach. And so I just want to look at the character who's writing this for a moment. We're reading about God's love. And I want us to just um, think about who's writing. Believed to be the the Apostle John who's writing. uh, And that's believed to be the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. And that same person is believed to be the beloved disciple. The disciple, I think six times is mentioned in John's Gospel, the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple that Jesus loved, the one that Jesus loved. And there's a story from the Last Supper where Jesus is with his disciples and they're having a meal. And, 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 and it's described that um, he and the disciple that he loves, are, so the one's leaning on, back on the other. The disciple who's 
Jesus loves leans back against Jesus and, and asks him a question. And there's this kind of intimacy that's there amongst these disciples, but there's this close relationship that's there with John and Jesus. And it's no great surprise to me that the one who understands Jesus' love so powerfully is the one who's writing in John's gospel and then in 1 John onwards about how powerfully God loves and how powerfully Jesus loves us and demonstrates God's love to us. It's the same, G- same John who stood at the base of the cross when Jesus is crucified and has a little conversation and talks to his mom and talks to John, the disciple that Jesus loved, and describes what they should do next and how um, John should care for Jesus' mother. And, and there's kind of this real intimate portrayal there. And then we come to this passage, 1 John 4, 8, and we read these words, God is love. God is love. This is core to who God is. And I know we know this. But I've got a slight, uh, I'm excited by this, but a slight concern. You see, sometimes we come across um, this thought that God is this or God is that. And we, we prefer some bits to others. Sometimes we have ideas about what God is and we don't like some of how the Bible portrays God. And so we create God in our own image. And, and this one's a fairly safe one. God is love is quite a nice one to choose, isn't it? If you're going to create a God in your own image or create a bit of God that you like and hang on to it, to say God is love is pretty cool. But this this same book, this same 1 John letter, it's only five chapters, talks about God being light. It talks about God being righteous. And it talks about God being love. Three little thoughts. God is light. God is righteous. God is love. Spoken in the same way. So we, we know that God is all three of those. And we have to hold those together in tension and together say God is love and God is righteous and God is light. There's three things I've got to hang on to in my head. And sometimes what we can do is push a couple out because we're not quite sure how to fit them in and we'll just hang on to one. Now God is love is a pretty good thing to hang on to if you're just going to hang on to one thought about God. If you have to get rid of everything else because you can't cope having it in your head, God is love is a good one to have. But I want to encourage you to try and have a little bit more in if you can. And this is partly motivated by a conversation I had with someone years ago who I respected greatly. Um, very spiritual person, quite prophetic. Um, and I was chatting to them. We were chatting about God. And I mentioned the fact that God's holy. And this person said, please don't talk to me about God being holy. I can't cope with that. God is love and God is good. And I was taken aback. Because I, I thought, yeah, of course God is love and God is good. But he's also holy. You can cope hanging on to two things or three things at once in your head, can't you? And, and so I'm, if I'm laboring this, it's just because of that conversation that, and the way it made me think, maybe other people do this too. Now, I have to cope being a husband and a father and a son and a brother. I am all of those things. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son and a brother. Now, you can cope with that, can't you? Yeah? You know that I've got a, many of if you know me, you know I'm married. You know I've got a couple of sons. You know I am a son because I've got parents. And you, you might happen to know that I've got a brother. I'm all four of those things. The fact that I'm a husband doesn't stop me being a son. The fact that I'm a son doesn't stop me being a father. The fact that I'm a father doesn't stop me being a brother. I have to be all four of those things all of the time at the same time. Yeah? Does that make sense? So God is all good and all loving, and all just, and all holy, and all righteous, and all powerful, and all awesome, and all amazing. 
If you're reading through the Old Testament, we get these names of God, El. And then, El just means God. It's just the generic name for God. And then an added bit, El Shaddai or El Elyon or different names for God. And every time there's a new name for God, God doesn't have to wipe out an old one and say, well, you've got to get rid of that one. You can only cope with one. So here here have a new one. All of them are a greater and greater revelation of God. Going back to the one who is who he says he is, Yahweh in the Old Testament. I am. Almost indescribable. I am who I say I am. And so we get to the New Testament. We see this incredible revelation of God's love portrayed through Jesus. And that adds in and colors and shapes and helps us understand all these other aspects of God. But don't lose sight of God still being all these other bits too. Hold them together. God is love. And when he's bringing justice, like I spoke about last week when I was talking about hope, God brings justice with love because he doesn't stop being a God of love when he's bringing justice. We hold the two together. And we see in this passage not only the nature of love, but we see the extent of God's love. And we've been singing about this today. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, what was the film, uh, film some of you went to see last week? Was it 1917? I've not seen it. I only saw the trailer. Apparently it's brilliant and moving. And A lot of films have a sort of hero narrative running through. And I don't know if, this is, if that was one of them. But people up against the odds, rescuing others or making a difference for other people. And it's no great surprise, is it? It's no great surprise that there's a, an ache within us that there's a story, a big narrative that's being told around the world again and again and again of a people in need and a hero coming to rescue. Of heroic deeds. Why is that a story that's told? Because it echoes our story. It echoes our, our cry. It echoes the cry of creation that's saying, come and rescue. Come and save. It echoes because there's this ancient narrative of people in need and a rescuer coming. And actually, the truest of those, the truest narrative, the truest form of that is when Jesus comes and rescues us from our sin. When God himself comes to rescue us. We see in this this passage as well that God didn't only show us his love through sending his son or by coming himself into the world that we might live through him. But he did it at a time when we didn't love us. This is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When we're talking about our relationship with God, you didn't start it, he did. I didn't start it, he did. You know, some couple, we had a wedding here, some couples over time have little stories that they tell. And Judith's not here, she's on creche, so I can tell this one. Um, it's not embarrassing to her, so don't worry. Um, but um, we have a little story that we tell about how we, so not how we got together, because we were part of a group of students at college and we kind of got to know each other a bit. But there's a little story about who's, who held whose hand. Because I'm convinced that she held my hand first, and she's convinced that I held her hand first. Now, it doesn't really matter, because both of us ended up holding hands, and there's only two of us involved in this. So... But it's the who reached out first and initiated. Now, my memory is absolutely clear on this, as is hers. So we occasionally have this little, little chuckle and debate. 
And it doesn't really matter, does it? Because at the end of the story, we end up holding hands. So um, before that, we weren't. When it comes to me and God, there's no debate about who initiated. I know I had to choose him. I know I made a choice. I know I made a response. But thousands of years before I was even born, God had already sent Jesus. He'd already made a way because he loved me before I was created. He loved me before I existed. He loved me so much that he'd come to make a difference and he'd shown the initiative. There's no debate. Was it me first or him? It was him all the way. That's how much he loved me. He made a way when I couldn't. Even when I then and all of us have in some way, we lived our lives in opposition to him, he was still wooing us and calling us and saying, come, I love you. He was still making the first move. Again and again and again. Now up to this point, I've said nothing new. You know this. You know that God loves you. You know that Jesus sent, uh, God sent Jesus into the world, that he came himself in Jesus to live and to die for us. We know that he's an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But I wonder what happens when we hear this, this phrase, God loves you. God loves you. I wonder what happens to us. Do we just go, or does it just filter in? A bit like someone says, two plus two is four. And you go, yep, check, know that, done, move on. Is it just a little process where we kind of go, yeah, that's, that's information I've heard before. Uh, it's not interesting. I've done that. Because I believe that when it comes to, what was that verse that we saw earlier? We know, no, and we rely on the love that God has for us. That goes so much deeper. I know there's a stage here, but I'm relying on it right now. I'm, I'm relying on this holding my weight. I'm, well, it's not that difficult, is it? But I'm relying on it holding me up. I'm relying on all sorts of things we do every day, don't we? We get in our car and you, you go to put your foot on the brake as something stops in front of you and you're relying on your car stopping in time. You're relying on um, the brakes activating and working and, and your car kind of gradually and gracefully coming to a halt. All of us will have been through times when, well not all of us, some of us will have been through times when you went to put your foot on the brake and they didn't work as quick as you wanted. And you're and you kind of, oh, what's happening? And it, the, the shaky feeling, well, that's because you were relying on something that didn't quite work as you thought. And I, I wonder if all of us are actually relying on God's love or if we're kind of just aware of it uh, and we could get on without it if we really needed to. Because my conviction today is that God's love is something we need to begin to rely on. We live as if there's nothing else. There's no other hope. And in this passage we read at the end, the, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, this, this is amazing. I know that this is familiar to us, but I just wonder if some of us are a little bit ashamed by our sin. We're a little bit ashamed that God would need to come. That maybe there's a sense that if only I'd got it right, God wouldn't have had to come in Jesus and I could have just worked this all out myself and we'd have been okay and I'm ashamed and I'm still carrying shame for my sin. And that tendency can make us do a particular thing. I think when, when kids are ashamed, you see this in small children, when, when they've done something naughty that they shouldn't have done, and you go into the room and maybe there's something that's broken and that's fallen off a table and it's on the floor and it's smashed, and you go in and you, 
you, you kind of you heard the noise and you rush in, and the kids are like, "How did that happen? I don't know. I was, oh, I'm just as surprised as you are." And you know it's not true. You know they've been playing around and there's a football that's gone flying or something that's gone flying and something's got bashed. But the, the instant desire is to cover up, isn't it? To pretend because there's shame and guilt. And we cover up and we, we either minimize what's happened. Oh, it doesn't really matter. It'll be okay. Or we try and cover it up and pretend it wasn't anything to do with us. And sometimes when we read about these kind of passages there can be in us a tendency to still be so ashamed by the fact that we're sinful and sinners and we needed rescuing that we minimize that so much and we just go, yeah, God's love is great, isn't it? God's love, God's love. But the Bible passage doesn't do that. You see what it does? It actually highlights our sin and says, yes, you were sinners. You, you were sinful. You were away from God. But look what he did. Look how powerful his love was. It diminished um, didn't just diminish your shame, but it beat it on the cross. God's love defeated your sin. It defeated your shame. It defeated all of that. And now you can be one and can know God's love. If you read through the Gospels, and I encourage you to read through the Gospels this year, if you don't read the whole Bible, at least, at least spend time in the Gospels, you will discover the most, that Jesus says the most shocking things. Because I think we often present Jesus as being, the Old Testament as being a bit firm and kind of harsh, lots of rules. And then we read about Jesus and he's love and he's kind and he's gracious and he's good and he's wonderful and he heals people and he does all sorts of incredible things. And you, you read what Jesus actually does. It's this, he says, you heard it said long ago, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. I'm not going to go any further. Two's enough, isn't it? And you suddenly realize that Jesus doesn't come to water down sin. He doesn't come to water down the law. He doesn't come to water it down and say, I'm love, I'm good, I'm here. Let's just have a big hug. He comes and he says, look, you're all sinners. You're all in this together. But do you know what? I can defeat this. I can beat it. I've, I can win. There is a hope. There is victory in the cross. And he, he, rather than minimizing our sin, he maximizes it. Because all the time we're minimizing it, we're also minimizing the power of the cross. All the time we're saying, my sin doesn't really matter. It's not as bad as so-and-so's. I may have only committed adultery in my heart, but I haven't actually done it in person. Or I may have only had anger in my heart. I haven't actually lived out that murder. Jesus says, stuff that. Not in those words. Forget that. Don't pretend that it's just on the outside. In your heart and in your mind, you're just the same. There is no difference. Stop playing the I'm better than them game. Stop comparing. Stop trying to pretend you're not as bad a sinner as them. And I love you. And I love you so much that I've come to deal with all that stuff. Our tendency, our innate tendency, is to set ourselves up as little gods. 
and go our own way, telling God to, to mind his own business and let us do what we want. And we wouldn't ever be as rude as that because even as Christians, we're seeking to follow him. But there's a draw within us to say, God won't mind. It's okay. Just, just do this thing. It doesn't matter. Um, and if, even if we know God has a particular view on something to say, well, I'm doing it anyway. And there's this tendency that pulls us. And many times we resist that and we say, no, get away from me. I don't want to be doing that. But just occasionally we, we give in to that. And we find ourselves wondering, are we still saved? Are we loved by God? And I'm here today to say you're loved by God more than you could possibly imagine. There's no need to diminish the pain of sin because Jesus paid for it. It is dealt with. Don't shrink it down. Maximize it and then put it up against the cross and say, but God, you dealt with this. It's gone. There's no need to hide. There's no need to, to worry anymore. It is dealt with. So I suppose my question is this, are we every day aware of the love of God? Are we aware of the love of God whatever we do, wherever we go, that God loves us? Do we know it and are we relying on it? Is God's love shaping my thinking? Do I keep coming back to the love of God every time anything happens? When I face, when we maybe face an interview or an exam, or you get a job or you lose a job, or you have a relationship or you don't have a relationship, or something goes right or something goes wrong, are we grounded in the love of God so much that whatever happens, we know that we're loved? That is my hope and that's my desire. That, when we, that we would every day know and know and know that we're loved. And there's a, there's a simple way we can help ourselves with this. And this is a practice that I, from time to time, put into my life for a little season. It's a psalm, Psalm 92. It's good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. As you wake up in the morning, thank God that he loves you. You've done nothing. All you've done is sleep. You're a bit crinkly, your hair's all over the place, you possibly have a little bit of dribble. <laughs> but he loves you right there before you've performed, before you've done anything. Wake up and say, God, I thank you that you love me. You see, that way you start the day loved. There's no sense that you have to perform to gain God's love. There's no sense that you have to beat an addiction or be better or try and be less sinful or try and do something good or pray for a certain length of time to please God because then he'll love you more. You wake up loved. Proclaim it in the morning. And then when you get to the end of the day, you can go to bed saying, God, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. And you can recount some things that God's done that day. That's so much better than starting off going, God, I thank you that you're faithful to me, a worthless sinner. And by the end of the day, hoping that you've earned his love. I think some of us fall into that from time to time. Start the day loved. Start the day loved. Press on. A couple of things very quickly to say. That was a big point I wanted to make. We also grow in God's love. We grow in the knowledge of the love of God. And, and, and my prayer today would, that, would be that our love would grow. Um, this... this Bible passage here says this is how love is made complete. Another word for that is perfect. It's the same word that's being used in the underlying language that's there. So it just means perfect, got to the end of, finished, completed, wrapped up, done, nothing more to add. And uh, this, there's a sense there that our love is made complete 
in God and it grows, it continues to develop. It continues to, to be worked out in us. And I think sometimes we can think that God's love is all about me. All about making me happy and it's not. It's, it's so much more than that. And as we read this Bible passage, I haven't got time to go into all of it today, but as we read it, uh, take it home, read 1 John 4 and notice that it's as we love one another and it's as we obey God that our love is made complete and God's love is made complete in us. You may just notice, and I will just mention this, you may just notice this interesting passage here. God's, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Isn't that an interesting little phrase? Interesting little phrase that we can approach God's day of judgment with confidence. Why? Because we're loved. Because he loves you. But not just loves you in a nice, warm way. The world's love is heart-shaped, isn't it? God's love is cross-shaped. When, when Jesus loves us, he loves us enough to deal with our sin and take away our shame. And so we stand before him, even in that time when everything is on display, and know that we're loved and we walk in confidently. Thirdly, finally, we overflow with God's love. This should be the result of us knowing that we're loved and loving God in return. It should be that our love wells up and overflows. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then later on, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Three simple questions today. I wonder if we know and rely on the fact that God loves us. That's number one. Number two, I wonder if we are growing in love. Number three, I wonder if other people know that we're loved by God because our love for him and his love in us is bubbling over and overflowing to them. I hope it is. I trust it is. My prayer is that we would know God's love so much we would rely on it and depend on it. My hope is this, and there's so much more I could say on that passage. My hope is this, that we this year would become unshakable in our conviction that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus. That Jesus came willingly, willingly to die. To make a way for us that we could know him and that that conviction would be unshakable, that we would be able to walk around tomorrow with our heads high, not skulking around with shame, but walking around knowing that we're loved by God, knowing a confidence in his presence, knowing that we can rely on it, that we're not basing it on how well we perform or on our next performance review, or on what people think of us or anything else, but just knowing, knowing, knowing that we're grounded in the love of God. And I hope then we might rely on it as we look forward. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you love us. But I pray that that fact would become truth for us. And I pray that truth would become lived out for us. That we wouldn't just have that truth as a fact, God is love, God loves us, yippee. But that it would sink deep into our hearts 
Lord, I know there'll be people here with different stories. We've all got different stories about your work in our lives, different stories about our own experiences in our lives. But I pray that something of your word would drop into our hearts today and that we would know as never before that we are loved, that this life-transforming truth would embrace us and inhabit us and change us. Lord, would you put away all doubt? Would you put away all performing by us to earn your love? And may we instead know and live as people who are loved by God. And Lord, may that flow from us. I pray we wouldn't be selfish in just holding on to it and living as if that's it, that's the end of the story. But our love would be growing and completed as we pour it out on one another, thereby demonstrating that we're your disciples. Lead us in love, I pray. Amen.